to Conversations in Atlantic Theory, a podcast dedicated to books and ideas generated from and about the Atlantic world. In collaboration with the Journal of French and Francophone Philosophy, these conversations explore the cultural, political, and philosophical traditions of the Atlantic world, ranging from European critical theory to the Black Atlantic to sites of indigenous resistance and self-articulation as well as the complex geography of thinking between traditions, inside traditions, and from positions of insurgency, critique, and counter-narrative. Today's discussion is with Richard Price, an anthropologist and historian who has written extensively on the history and culture of African Americans throughout the hemisphere. He has taught at Yale, John Hopkins, and William & Mary, and in France, Netherlands, as well as Brazil. His prize-winning books, translated into several languages, include First Time, Alabi's World, The Convict and the Colonel, Travels with Toy, and Rainforest Warriors, and most recently with Sally Price, Samaka Dreaming, and Maroons in Guyane. In this conversation, we discuss Maroons in Guyane, Past, Present, Future, published by University of Georgia Press in 2022. Our conversation here focuses on the history of Maroon people in Guyane and how these groups differ from one another, as well as their current situations. Hello. So, hi, Richard. Thank you for joining us today. Good morning. Um, We're really excited to hear about Maroons in Guyane. So before we get started, um, as a sort of, you know, we do this at the beginning of the podcast where we ask you to narrate us about the origins of the project. So what kind of drew you to the questions and um, what were your concerns, personal, ethical, you know, or philosophical? <laughs> okay, first of all, uh, I should say that this is a co-authored book, which I wrote with Sally Price, um, with whom I've been together since... 1962, and uh, we've written a number of books together. We often write apart, but this is one that we did together, and we did the fieldwork for it together over many years. Um, But Sally has generously said that uh, I can do the interview because it's too complicated for two people. Um, The second thing I wanted to mention about the book is that through uh, some strange circumstances, having to do with ransomware, the book's publication keeps being delayed. Um, It's actually, the book is actually sitting in a warehouse somewhere in Michigan um, at the printer, but the printer has been hit with ransomware and it's unclear when it's going to be released. Amazon now has a date of June 15th, um, which is a couple of months after the original. So, in any case, it will be released in the coming weeks. I So I just wanted to let you know that. <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> so I appreciate the ebook. So that makes, you know, definitely helped me out. <laughs> so you wanted me to talk about the origins of this book. Um, Sally and I are anthropologists, and we started working with Suriname Maroons, that is the descendants of uh, enslaved Africans who escaped in the 17th and early 18th century into the forest, into the Amazonian forest of Suriname, which is in South America, just north of Brazil. And uh, we lived with them for a couple of years in the, 19, in the 1960s first, and we kept going back as I became a professor at Yale and at Johns Hopkins. Um, we would go back during summers and keep. we kept working with them. I wrote lots of articles and books about them and with them. And uh, then in 1986, a civil war broke out in Suriname between Maroons and the national government, the national army. And uh, we were expelled from Suriname uh, in a night. Uh, we had gone there because the paramount chief of the Samakas, the group that we worked with, um, who was nearing, he was in his 90s, and he was in the hospital, and he thought he was dying. 
He was told he was dying, and he wanted to talk to us. So we flew suddenly from Paris to Paramaribo, the capital. And uh, we were arrested, and eventually, though we thought they were going to kill us, the military police put us on a ferry to Guyane, French Guiana, which is the neighboring country. And so we arrived there. Uh, we had our passports, which they had stamped all over, on Geldech, which means uh, that <laughs> we weren't allowed back, um, that they were invalid. And um, we, um, we took a road taxi to friends of ours, Samakas, from, originally from Suriname, from the village where we'd worked, who are now working at the French missile launching site, the European Space Center in Kourou, French Guiana. Um, Samakas largely built that missile site during the 1960s, and a number of them stayed as manual laborers living in shacks in the town uh, of Kourou. So we went to them, and that was our introduction to Guyane in 1986. And since then, uh, we we were living in uh, Martinique. Since then, we've spent a great deal of time in Guyane, French Guiana, um, working with Samakas and other Maroons. And I should say that uh, in the 1980s, when we first went there, the town of Saint-Laurent-du-Maroni, which is the border city in Guyane, the border with French Guyana, with uh, Suriname, that town had about just 2,000 people. It was the heart of the famous Bagne, the penal colony of French Guiana, and it has the Congre de la Transportation. And um, at that time, Saint-Laurent, in the mid-'80s, had about 4,000 people, 2,000 of whom were Maroons. So it was a very small town with a small number of Maroons. By 2000, it had grown to 37,000 people. I'm sorry, the number of Maroons had grown from 2000 to 37,000. And Maroons by 2000 were 20% of the population of Guyane. And Sally and I realized, spending time there and talking to all sorts of people from uh, colonial administrators, I call them colonial because French Guiana still feels very much like a French colony, even though it's a département, supposedly like any other, but it's very colonial in that the people who run it are all what the, all the administrators are white French people who come for two years or four years and then go back or to some other part of the French former empire. And um, what we saw is that the people there, including the Creole majority, that is the Afro-Guyanese, descendants of slaves who were not Maroons, whose, whose ancestors hadn't escaped from enslavement, that those people and all the white people we met there um, knew very little about who these Maroons were. Suddenly there were, in by 2000, there were 20% of the population. So they were in schools, they were in the prison, they were all over the place, and no one really knew who they were. They thought of them as primitives, uh, as savages. And so we decided to write a book which we wrote directly in French. In fact, it's the only book we've ever written directly in French. We wrote it for the Guyanese people to explain who these people were, and explaining that there were four Maroon groups in Guyane, all of whom had originally come from Suriname, from Suriname plantations, their ancestors had escaped from Suriname plantations, and most of whom had come as refugees during the 1980s and 90s from the Civil War in Suriname. Uh, from that Civil War, about 10,000 uh, people called Okanisi or Jukas 
from the Kotika region of Suriname, 10,000 people fled their villages, which were being bombed with napalm and were being otherwise, the people were being massacred, hundreds and hundreds of people. They fled to Guyon. And what France did was not grant them refugee status. Instead, it called them displaced people because France, if, if they had been granted refugee status, they would have had all sorts of rights, for instance, to schooling and to work and other things which France didn't want them to have. The Creole population didn't want them to have either. Um, what happened is that when the war ended, the Civil War, um, France, well, France put these people in camps and they, they were camps surrounded by 10,000 people, camps surrounded by barbed wire all around the area of Saint Laurent de Maoni. Um, they were guarded by the French Foreign Legion and they were really scary, scary places. We visited them. Um, we helped a, psychi- a French psychiatrist at one point um, deal with one of the inmates of these camps, um, a sweet young boy who we got freed from incarceration. And in any case, um, after after the war in the late 90s, these camps were... Uh, were raised, the people were sent back to Suriname, but most of them just came right back. It's just a river that you can cross in a canoe. So today, French Guiana has about 100,000 Maroons who constitute 36% of the population of Guyana. So it's tremendous. If you took them together, they're the largest single population group in Guyana. And still, people don't have a very, other people don't have a very good idea of who they are. The fact that there are four different peoples, Samakas, Alkanesis, Alukus, and Pamakas, that they speak different languages, that they have completely different histories and identities. So, there, so in 2018, that is 15 years after we had published the book called Les Maons in 2003, 15 years later, we decided it was time to write a new book talking about how Maroons who had been, who had been, uh, just a few thousand people, um, when we wrote the first book had now become a hundred thousand people. And, their situations were quite changed in many, many ways um, in terms of residence, in terms of schooling, in terms of uh, their participation in the drug economy, exporting to Europe, and so forth. So we wrote this new book in 2018. We were planning to publish it in French, but decided why not also publish it in English at the same time. So that's what we are doing. Because of the pandemic, some of this was held up. So we have the English book called Maroons in Guyane, Past, Present, Future. It's now um, just about to be published any day. And we have a book called uh, Les Marons en Guyane. It's being published by Ibis Rouge in Guyane, largely for Guyane. Um, and that will be published uh, in the coming weeks. So that's sort of the background how we got involved in publishing this book. That's um, what an introduction. I mean, I wasn't ready for when you said you were going to be arrested. I mean, that's that's really quite the story of... Um, we thought we were going to be killed. They drove, yeah. us, they drove us through the night from Paramaribo to Albina, the border town. And when they stopped to get out in the middle of that, to go and relieve themselves, one, one of them. We thought they were taking us out to shoot us, but they didn't. So so can you tell us a little bit more about, you talked about you were living there. How were the interactions between, of course, they didn't um, know about the Maroons, the Guyan people themselves, until they started to become an increasing number. So you've seen 
over the years than the change of how the Maroons are being received in Guyane. Can you tell us a little bit more about that dynamic? Sure. Um, Saint-Laurent du Maroni is now a town, as I said, it had 4,000 people in the 1980s. It now has 60,000 people. And it's the largest majority Maroon city in the world. It has about 43,000 Maroons out of the 60,000 population. So it's a Maroon town. And not in terms of who the mayor is or and the people who run the town, they're still Creoles. But uh, in terms of the population, who you see in the marketplace, the language is spoken, and so forth, it's a majority Maroon town. Um, so there, if you go into a lycée, when, when Sally and I give a class, for instance, if we're invited by a teacher to give a class in a high school or a, a college, a junior high school, um, if we start speaking in Samaka language, the kids, rather than in French, the way their teachers do, the kids light up, their faces, you know, they smile, they laugh, they want to talk. Um, so it's, it's still a place, uh, where there are very good things happening in terms of uh, children being educated. Uh, the health system is the French, uh, you know, a version of the French health system. So that lot, the reason that Maroon parents come over from Suriname to, and migrate into Guyane is because of uh, economic opportunities, even though they're at the bottom of the society and the women work as cleaning women and the men do manual labor, mostly. Um, but the children are getting educated and they're going to the university and they're moving to France. There's a significant migration of Maroons into France. Um, kids are going into the French army. Um, they're getting jobs as mechanics, as engineers. And a, a significant portion of the university in Cayenne is now uh, are, a significant portion of the, of the students are Maroons, almost all from uh, Saint-Laurent and, and Ryers. So it's changed a lot. At the same time, um, when we visit the prison, the Centre Penitentiaire of, uh, of Guyane, about 80% of the people, we estimate, don't speak French, of the inmates. And many of them are Maroons, and uh, young Maroons who are arrested on drug charges. And um, if you follow the news in France about the people called mule, mules, drug mules, who ingest condoms or other uh, rubber little balloons filled with cocaine, um, which comes from Suriname, is brought over the border, is then given to these uh, maroon kids in Saint Laurent who ingest a hundred of these little balloons, say a kilo, a kilo or so of cocaine, and then fly, they're, they're given a ticket to fly to Orly in Paris, where they're met by drug dealers um, who take the drugs and only something like 10% of them get arrested. And when we talk to school teachers in Saint Laurent, they say that a week doesn't go by in a college or a high school when they don't see a kid who suddenly is wearing really nice Adidas sneakers and the, the latest t-shirts and so on who's been a drug mule. They go over for five days and come back. And even if they're caught, they only serve a year or two in prison in France. So it's very lucrative. They get five or 6,000 euros a trip. And that's quite common. So there are all these terrible things going on at the same time as uh, there's a kind of francisation going on, which you can consider however you want, but from the kids' points of view, it's it's often good. Um, girls seem to do much better in school than boys. 
there are more uh, temptations for the boys to get into the drug trade and do other things, and they see less of a chance um, when they, you know, go through school than girls. So in the university, there are more more in girls than there are uh, boys. Mm-hmm. So but the place is evolving. You know, it's evolving a great deal. Another thing I think that struck me, it's literally was the first page of the book. Um, your first note is the Maroons are not a single people. Um, and I, you know, I was curious, well, you make sure to note, you know, the four different groups, the Alukus, the Akonesis, Pamakas, and the Samakas. Why do you think many conversation revolve around um, the the rhetoric is often just grouping all maroons together in one big pile, um, and why why do you think that is? Well, maroons, there's a long history in Guyana of maroons being uh, grouped with Amerindians, um, and just being seen as primitives. They Guyana until 1969 was divided into two halves. Um, I mean, there was the coastal, the, the coastal part, and then there was a whole big interior part called the Tetuau de Linini, which really wasn't controlled at all by France. There were no schools. There was no gendarme. There was nothing there. And then in 1969, suddenly, France decided to create communes in the interior, just like in the rest of France and and like on the coast of Guyane. So they took the Aluku population, which were the, which is the smallest of the Maroon populations, um, but which had been in France since 1776 when they were pushed over the border during a colonial war in Suriname. Um, the Alukus had lived up the Maori River, the border river between Guyan and Suriname, and the Lawa, which feeds into the Maori. And um, there were a couple of thousand of them, and they were divided into a couple of different communes. And suddenly, France put in mayors. Uh, they put in uh, the they put in a, the Kadas, they started delimiting the land. Uh, they put in gendarmerie. They put in a doctor in each commune. Uh, the church moved in. So they made these communes, and what they did is they paid people back money for allocation familiale, for family allowances. Um, which French women got for having babies and bringing them up. So if you were a French, if you were an Aluku woman in 1970 who had had 10 children, uh, you were paid back pay for what you would have gotten if you had been in the allocation familial system all those years. So suddenly... An Aluka woman who might have had uh, $10, 10 euros, equivalent of 10 euros or $10 in her name, might have $100,000. And people didn't know what to do with money. There was suddenly money everywhere in Aluku. And the communes, the mayors, had budgets of hundreds of thousands of euros to spend. So they just gave out money all over the place. People started buying everything from mail-order catalogs in France, from La Redoute and whatever. And it was a crazy time. I had a student, uh, Kenneth Bilby, who's an eminent ethnomusicologist now, um, who did a study of the Aluku during that period when that was going on. Well, he was there in the 1980s, actually. But he, he described this whole period in which money came in. And, and at the same time, of course, schools came in. Um, so people who didn't, uh, no one had known French before, but suddenly they all, all the children knew French and grew up. And now the Aluku, who are uh, 
something like 11,000 people in Guyan. Salamanca's in Guyan are, I think, 100,000 something, and Okanasi's Juca's 100,000. So Alucos are 10% as big as Salamanca's in Guyan or as Alucos, but they run everything for Maroons in Guyan because they're originally, they're French by birth. Um, so in uh, what used to be the Conseil Regional and the Conseil General, there were Aluku representatives. Now in the Collectivité Territoriale, which is the local parliament, there are Alukus. But there are no Samakas and there are no Okanasis, even though there are 10 times more of them living there. Um, now, of course, many of the Okanasis and Samakas and Pamakas living in Guyan are, uh, according to French law, illegal immigrants. Um, that is, they don't yet have French papers. Uh, many of them do, but large numbers don't, because it's very harsh for migrants in Guyana to get French papers. Anthropologists have written some good studies of that recently. Catherine Benoit at Kennedy College is one. Um, because Creoles who run the place uh, politically, that is, they're the ones who control the electoral system in Guyan, um, don't want more Maroons to be recognized because they feel like their way of life is being overwhelmed by these primitive people who have come in and who still, um, though they're you know, becoming Frenchified, uh, nevertheless, are at the bottom of society. So all of that is going on as we speak. And it's part of why we decided to write this book, trying to describe the situation of Maroons in Guyan today, the, the, the great variety of residences in which they live, the fact that only 1% of Alukus still live in traditional quote-unquote, traditional villages, the way they lived, say, in the 1970s and 1980s. Um, only 1%. All the rest live either in one of the two big towns in the interior, um, Maipasula or uh, Papaistone, um, or they live on the coast or in France. So, and this book, breaks down who lives where and what sorts of situations, and we try to give a sense of what it's like for illegal immigrants, for people who already have French papers, living in these different towns and in, the cap in and around the capital, Cayenne, and what their own perceptions are. Um, there is now an Aluku, there's now a, a Juca uh, man in Okanasi, who is the uh, representative to the French Parliament in Paris from the Maronais region. And he received essentially you know, 97% of, of the vote of those Haluku communes. So, that, so there is a Maroon representative in Paris now, the, the Naïk Adam. So when you talk about the the familial allocation that was given, did that happen around the same time as the gold rush? Um, the gold rush was later. Um, the gold rush really came in the 1990s mostly and has continued to today. Um, it, it's still just, a, it keeps growing. Um, and what has happened is that while in Suriname, uh, most of the gold, the artisanal gold mines are owned by uh, members of the ruling party in Suriname after the Civil War, um, by the dictator Daisy Bautersa and his henchman, and Roni Brunswick, who is now vice president of Suriname, and his family. In Guyane, the mines, the territory where the mines are, is owned by Alucus, and the miners are Brazilians. They're illegal Brazilians. And so that in the Aluku communes now, 
um, for instance, in Maya Pasula or in Papayistón or in Apatu, um, the majority of the population in terms of numbers is actually Brazilian. They're no longer, it's no longer Aluku. And the majority of the population are illegal. And they live separately. They don't mix with the Alukus. Um, there was a time in the early 2000s when they did mix and when Christian Taubira, uh, who was the Minister of Justice in France, who's Guyanese, who's a Creole Guyanese, she wrote a very strong report about the effects of gold on my basula and the fact that suddenly there was prostitution everywhere and uh, there was a tremendous amount of violence in that town. What's happened since is that right across from Maipasula in Suriname, Chinese have built a whole large, a whole row of supermarkets. There are now 20 or 25 supermarkets. Each one is identical in what it's got in it. It has gold mining equipment, big pumps and uh, all kinds of uh, piping and everything you could want in an illegal gold mine and also lots of alcohol and all the rest. Um, and uh, it's run for the Brazilians who are the gold miners. And now the Brazilians don't go into my Pasula, into the town, with, but they come over there when they have their free time and they sling their hammocks under these Chinese stores, and they go to the, you know, to Brazilian prostitutes who are now working there, and the, and there are discos, and there's pretty much, and there's a, there are churches, Brazilian churches. Yeah. So the, and, the demographic just just changed. For how did that affect like the maroon groups? Well, it's affected them uh, a great deal. Anthropologists who have studied this claim that there isn't a single Aluku family who doesn't get their income from gold mining. and But they don't do gold mining. The, the Brazilians pay taxes. They pay the owners of the land something like 10%. And these, these illegal Brazilian mines, which the French state has been trying to destroy for 25 years, and every year they send Hundreds and hundreds, thousands maybe, you can read about it in the book, I don't remember the exact figures, but but hundreds and hundreds of gendarmes and helicopters and all sorts of materiel into these places to destroy them. And they end up taking out, they destroy lots of, lots of equipment, um, but they end up finding, you know, three kilos of gold or something, while in fact hundreds of kilos of gold are being exported illegally all the time, and Brazilians are making money off of it. It's a tremendous economy. One of the ways the Maroons are involved, another way, is in providing the transport of all the materiel up to these supermarkets, these Chinese stores. Um, Jukas control the canoe traffic on which everything moves. And so that in a mining camp, for instance, in Guian, a Brazilian mining camp, which which has, um, you know, uh, which will have cafes, which are also whorehouses. Um, they'll have a dentist. They'll have a church. I mean, they're real towns. The French try to destroy them, and they do destroy them, but they are built up immediately afterwards. and But if you want to buy uh, a bottle of beer that in Paramaribo or Albina costs one euro, a, a, a liter of beer, um, that it costs 10 or 12 euros in these mining camps. And I show in the book what the markups are, how much the canoe men who bring it from Albina in Suriname up to these Chinese stores get, how much the canoe men who take it at night past the gendarmes into the creeks where they can get to the mining camps, how much they get, how much the people who 
run the quads, these uh, four by fours, is that what you call them in English? Yeah, the four by fours. That they use to get from the creeks into the uh, you know interior, they get paid. So all along the way, there are markups. So that things are extremely expensive in these camps. And I have uh, statistics done by various people who studied this of how much uh, the miners themselves get, how much the cooks get, how much the prostitutes get. These are all Brazilians. Um, and you can see that they make a lot more money than they do if they do the same thing in Brazil. So um, there's, you know, our capitalist reasons for this to go on in Guyana is it does in Suriname, where there are uh, tens of thousands where in Paramaribo, the capital of Suriname, there's a large Brazilian neighborhood, very large now, little Brazil. And, and um, so these are places where mining, gold mining, has really upset uh, the way the world used to work and completely changed what were once, when we went there in the 1960s, were isolated villages where, for example, the women in the village we lived in had been to the city, been taken to the city once in their life when they were girls, usually 10 years old, by their father or their mother's brother to show them the city. So they knew what a car was and they knew what a horse was and they knew what a white person was. And otherwise, where they lived, they never saw any of those things. And um, Sally and I wrote a book uh, three, four years ago called Samaka Dreaming. And that is an account of our field work in the 1960s, the, the two years we spent in Samaka, way up the river. And it really gives the flavor of what life was like before all these changes, before the Civil War happened. And once the Civil War happened in Suriname, as in Guyane, um, the political system of Maroons was destroyed. The authority of older people was destroyed. People, you know, were assimilated, uh, are being assimilated into national systems of justice, which before never set foot in those villages. And, you know, schools have come in and in Suriname, as in Guyane, every kind of evangelical religion you've ever heard of, and a lot you haven't, have moved in. So that um, in right now, in Aluku villages we visited in 2018, um, which was when we did feel work particularly for this book, we really wanted to figure out what was going on right now. There were lots of people your age um, say, you know, college graduate student age who would not go to their grandmother's funeral in a Okanasi village in Suriname, which was a half hour away by motor canoe because they were afraid of sorcery. They were afraid of being bewitched because the, the pastors of their church told them that the people in those villages practice witchcraft and that their traditional religion is all witchcraft and satanic and so forth. So these people, these young people, are being cut off from their past uh, in very radical ways. And, I mean, I had never heard of a lot of these churches, um, but they're there, and uh, they're having tremendous influence, and they're kind of taking over. Some of them come from the great country of the United States, but not all. Some of them come from Mexico. They come from Mexico. I mean, the, it's like the demonization of, you know, the Maroons and painting them in this primitive light. It's It almost just sounds like rereading a history book of colonialism, but present day, um, you know, so that that's a little... Um, that's quite disturbing, I have to say. Yes, and, 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 and what's most disturbing, I mean, in a Grisantian sort of way, is the idea that people themselves are accepting this 
and taking on that point of view about themselves and their grandmothers, you know, uh, and grandfathers and ancestors, which makes the sort of history that I, as a anthropological historian, have always have have, have, uh, have made foremost in my books, like First Time and Alabi's World, where I've let uh, elder Samaka historians speak and talk about their early days of uh, of warfare and resistance against white oppressors, uh, slaveholders, and armies, and so forth, the heroism of their ancestors, all of that becomes moot when you take this sort of late neocolonialism that's going on now in places like Guyan and Suriname in part through evangelical churches. How do you think the, um, you know, when you talk about the Francisation, Francisation, (laughs) um, that's, you know, coming in, how, can you tell us a bit about this policy and its effect on the Maroon communities? Well, we've already talked about a lot of it. I mean, it went on, it went on at the political level, so it, changed the traditional Aluku uh, system of governance into a French system with a mayor and uh, his adjoint and, you know, a council. And and, um, and it, it so politically, it completely changed things. And in terms of authority, um, it changed, uh, it brought in schools. Uh, it brought in, uh, it brought in everything, modernism, modernization, uh, you know, what this song called modernization. Um, and it's, it all came in at once, uh, the use of money, cash. Before, in the villages, everything was shared. When a man killed a taper, which is a large animal, or a deer, um, he would butcher it and, you know, send the head to the paramount chief and legs to, you know, his grandmother or the captain of the village and different special parts to different people. And everyone would get a piece. And now everything is for sale. Nothing is ever given. Um, so... Uh, also, game is very much depleted because of the destruction of the forest by gold miners. So <laughs> there's much less game uh, than there used to be. And the same is true of fish. Um, gold miners use mercury, artisanal gold miners, even though it's illegal. They use mercury to uh, get the gold dust, to separate the gold from the earth. And um, that pollutes the rivers, and mercury uh, creates brain damage in children, so that everyone who lives downriver from these mines, which are all upriver from where people live, um, gets brain damaged. Amerindians who live upriver from the Aluku are particularly affected by this, Wayana and Wayampi people. So francisation is a very complicated project. As I've said, it also produces uh, university graduates among Maroons. Um, we have a friend who's a physician, a woman who's a physician in France, who's a uh, Samaka, whose parents were immigrants to Irakubo near Saint Laurent, and her, her parents don't know French, and they don't read. They never went to school. They don't read and write. And she's a physician who wants to come back to Guyane someday to work. Um, there are, we know, three or four graduates of Sciences Po in Paris um, who w- went to high school in Saint-Laurent. And again, whose parents don't know how to read and write. Um, so, you know, you can say that 
that's wonderful. That's part of francisation too. But so is all the rest. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, anthropologists or, or anyone else can stop modernization and globalization. It's well, All we can do is describe it and, uh, let, and, and hope that readers of our books get a better understanding of what's going on and can then take whatever political action they want to. Yeah, I mean, I think just from this conversation, not only did we touch on the politics or the economic, but also the environmental degradation that's taking place. Um, and like the, it's like this battle and tension of cultures and generations. <laughs> so, you know, which makes this quite complex um, in terms of, like you said, the project of um, the Francisation, it's, it's a lot. So we can look at it in so many different ways, but the the big picture does it does look scary, you know, especially to um, the different maroon groups that are living in Suriname and in Kian, especially if they're not getting the support they need from the state. No, in both places, they're getting less support from the state than people who live on the, on the coast or in the capital. There's no question in terms of the quality of their schools, the quality of their health care. Um, and the quality of just of the justice system. Yeah, that's um, that's yeah, that's definitely devastating. But your book sheds more light to it. Um, you know, whether the past, present, and future. I think my favorite part really was seeing how. I think you mentioned how there was like a Scottish colonial who came in and he started to learn from the Maroons about the environment and how they took like their agricultural skills. And this was in the 1770s, um, which I found quite fascinating. So they had they had their own way of living and their own skills. Um, and, and they still do. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I, I wrote a book called Travels with Toy. Um, Toy was a what was a Salmaka healer, uh, who I knew from 2000 to 2015 when he died. Um, he was about ten years older than I, and he had lived all of his adult life in Cayenne, um, on the outskirts of Cayenne, um, which is the capital of French Guiana. Um, but he remained the wisest Samaka that I have ever met. Um, and he taught me a very great deal, much of which I've tried to put in this book. Um, he knew more about 18th century history than anyone I have ever met. Um, he was certainly my greatest teacher. And uh, he was a man who had a practice of healing um, based on uh, leaves and roots and vines that he collected in the forest. Uh, so he would ask me to drive him for a couple of hours out into the forest, and we would collect. And then he had a practice um, which treated metropolitan, white metropolitan French people, Jukas, Samakas, Haitians. There are a lot, many Haitian immigrants in Cayenne, in Brian. Uh, Hmong. There are a lot of Hmong <laughs> immigrants. Um, he, tr he treated, uh, members of the Conseil General. It was not unusual, um, to see a car, a uh, 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 Mercedes, a big Mercedes parked in front of his shack it, it, on the outskirts of Cayenne in the middle of a Brazilian ghetto. Um, That's quite an image. <laughs> in, in, the, uh, in, in, in the book, Travels with Toy, I published a picture of such a car in front of his house. And when I was getting ready to do the French edition, because the book is also in French, Voyage avec Toy, when I was getting ready to do that, um, I went through the book with Toy, of course, to see if it was, if everything in it was okay. 
to publish because I knew that his neighbors, uh, those who could read, and uh, but a lot of people in Guyana would read the book about him. And um, and one thing, either he or his wife, I can't remember, said, oh, no, you got to block out, was that car. Because they said, everyone knows whose car that is. You know, it belonged to you know, a very important elected official. So they, they knew the license plate. So I simply, we fuzzed out the license plate in the French edition. <laughs> but, but, but anyway, uh, his knowledge, um, I mean, it, if, if you were to look at that book, it, it would look very exotic. Um, his brother, who would come over from Paramaribo sometimes and who was blind, had a spirit, was often possessed by a spirit um, who lived in the 18th century and who was uh, a sp- was very famous in Salamanca history and he's very famous in Sur- Suriname history. Uh, it, it, he, he, but in any case, this spirit witnessed various events in the 18th century that he told me about. He was an eyewitness to those events. So I was able to recount these events in the book, which I have other accounts of from Dutch soldiers who witnessed them, which I found in archives in The Hague and so forth, and put but them you together. them through the spirit who took right. all of that is who, who saw them. And, and so, and this same particular spirit also, um, he, he was married to uh, an underwater, an under-the-sea spirit called the Wenti God, who, and he visited her underwater. So he was able to tell me the password you needed to get into the great city underwater of Oloni. You need a special password, that you, and, and few people know it, you know, and so on. So this spirit... Um, taught me a great deal. And Toy himself, that was his brother's spirit. Toy himself had another, a different spirit who possessed him, who often spoke with Sally and me. And uh, he, that spirit always called Sally Madame. And uh, <laughs> uh, anyway, that, that's a book, Travels with Toy, that's about what I learned from Toy and from these spirits. But there's tremendous knowledge. There's a whole other world. And um, it's being destroyed in the sense that with Toy's death, there really aren't successors. As, as he used to say to me and other Samakas in the 1960s used to say, to learn about this stuff, um, your ears have to never grow weary. You know, your, your ass doesn't, can't grow weary from sitting. You have to sit with with your grandparents. You have to sit with the old people. You have to go at cock's crow, which is the time a mother's brother teaches his sister's son. It's a matrilineal society. These are all matrilineal societies, Maroons. Um, not matriarchal, but matrilineal. They're very patriarchal, but they're matrilineal. Um, but in any case, uh, you have to go sit with your mother's brother at Coxcrow, over and over, and each time he would tell you just a little bit of what you need to know, and because you never tell more than half of what you know. And slowly, 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 over a lifetime, you build up your knowledge. So this knowledge is tremendous. Uh, uh, and what francisation or globalization in Suriname um, does is it ultimately destroys this knowledge. It makes us more homogeneous, and it puts these people who are proud, heroic people, uh, proud of their ancestors, uh, who defeated the whites. Uh, they defeated colonialism. Um, it, it turns them into people, many of whom sit at the very bottom of modern society because they're not sufficiently literate, and um, not sufficiently, you know, westernized. Mm-hmm. That's um, so. How how did finishing this book leave you? Um, 
I don't know. We finished it and COVID hit and uh, <laughs> I, just, I, 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 I decided to write a memoir during COVID about my life as a anthropologist and historian and Caribbeanist. It will be published in October. It's called Inside Outside, uh, Adventures in Caribbean History and Anthropology. And it tells the stories of uh, well, my childhood and education and fieldwork in various places um, and sort of the origin of each of my and Sally's books and how they happened. So that would be a place to look to learn much more about um, our fieldwork and how we did it and our whole intellectual background, which includes a, a much more than this, this. This book doesn't really have anything to do with philosophy in an explicit sense, but many of our other work do so that we, you know, we wrote an article called Shadowboxing in the Mangrove that uh, was, uh, you know, the first real critique of the Creolite movement in Martinique and uh, that we showed to Edouard, who was our friend, Grisson, um, before we published it uh, and had dinner at his apartment in New York. He was teaching at CUNY at the time. Um, and he said he didn't disagree with any of the criticisms, but he said, Why uh, Patrick? You know, why are you so tough on Patrick, his buddy, Patrick Chamoiseau? And we were tough on him. And we said we're tough because he deserved it, because this is what he said. Um, but, uh, we have been involved in what are more, what the French at least would call philosophical uh, kinds of things. Um, I had an interesting discussion uh, a couple of weeks ago with my son-in-law, who's a professor of philosophy in what is rated as the number one philosophy department in the United States. I won't mention where or who. But I asked him about uh, Glissant, as a philosopher, he said, never heard of him. Okay? This is a man who got his PhD at Oxford. Yes. And yes. it's interesting that Grisson, as far as, I'm, as, far as I am aware, uh, is very largely known in French departments, uh, departments of Romance languages, and not in philosophy departments at all in the United States. Um, uh, while in France, he's considered... Uh, you know, serious philosoph. I mean, that's that. It's like, how would I say this? Um, I guess it's like not knowing who Barack Obama is. You know, <laughs> well, I, in, you know, in one realm of the field. But it's, it's it's interesting that he's someone who everyone knows. Yeah. In Martinique, in France, wherever you are, you know, wherever you go in the world, there's a street. Barack Obama. Mm -hmm. it's, it's even in the Arab world, Barack Obama is known. It's you can't. <laughs> sure. Wish you were here. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us, and hopefully, we can have you um, on for um, Inside and after the memoir. So that would be great. That's coming out in October, so <laughs> I can send you. Uh, a PDF probably in August if you want. And just let me know. I know. Thank you so much, Richard. <laughs> You're very welcome.